Well, if you've got your Bible, uh, make your way to Genesis chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, we have some for you over there on that table. Uh, you can grab that and keep that. That's our gift to you as a church. But Genesis 16, and while you're turning there, I just want to warn you up front uh, that the text that we're in today is heavy, and we're going to have to talk about some heavy things. Uh, they usually leave this part of Abraham and story. Abraham and Sarah's story out uh, when you were a kid at Sunday school. They usually don't tell you this part of the story. Uh, and while I get that a little bit, because uh, Sarah passing off her maidservant to sleep with Abraham so that they can have a son, uh, is not the most age-appropriate story for children. Uh, and, and parents, just to set you at ease, as far as I know, uh, we're not doing that one this morning in Veritas Kids. Uh, but with all of that said, I'm, I'm really grateful that this story is in the Bible because I think it might be deeply healing to many of you who have walked through some really, really uh, difficult things. And so I want to pray for us one more time that that would be the case and that God would work among us in that way. And then we'll jump in together. Let me pray for us one more time. Jesus, uh, in this moment, we have gathered together to hear you speak through your word. And so speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Jesus, for, for those who have come in here this morning who are, are carrying so many different things, maybe they feel abandoned, maybe they feel neglected, maybe they feel uh, forgotten. Jesus, would you show them in this moment that they are not forgotten, that the same way you treated Hagar is the same way you see them and care for them. God, would you work among us in this moment, stir up our hearts fresh with love for you and trust in you because of how good you are. Would you work powerfully through your word this morning as we read it in your name? Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 16, starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us speaks like this. It says, Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servants in your power do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. 
Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. Well, last week in chapter 15, we, we saw Abraham beginning to doubt the promises of God that God had made, and so God reassured him by reiterating his promise and clarifying that he would give him a son, his very own son. And then God engaged in that covenant ceremony where he walked through the pieces of the animals all alone, uh, symbolizing that he would keep both his and Abraham's side of the covenant. I mean, it's just such an incredible picture of God's grace. And we, we don't know how much time has passed since that moment in chapter 15, but when chapter 16 opens, the promises of God still have not come to pass. Sarah is still barren. She's still unable to have children. Uh, and I assume at some point in these 10 years that, that she hits menopause and she kind of realizes like this is just not going to happen for me. I'm not going to be able to have a baby. I'm not going to be able to be a part of this fulfillment of the promise that God has made. And so she hatches this plan to have Abraham sleep with her maidservant, Hagar. And now before we rush to condemn Sarah for doing this, uh, I think we need to put ourselves in her shoes for a little bit because her response, even though it is sinful and wrong, is understandable. Right? If you've struggled with infertility or you've walked through a miscarriage, you know you'll try almost anything to get pregnant, and you, you go through doubt after doubt and question after question of God, do you even see me? Do, do you care about me? Like, wh why are you keeping this from me? Why are you doing this to me? God, do you hate me? Like, I, I can't even imagine the turmoil that Sarah must be feeling right now. Like, God has made these incredible promises to Abraham, and they're supposed to come through Sarah, but it really seems like God has fallen asleep at the wheel. It really seems that God has dozed off and has forgotten all about her. Like, this is what's supposed to happen, but it seems God is just not going to fulfill this promise at all. And so I imagine Sarah feels like she's letting both God and Abraham down, that she's the weak link in this chain, and she's the only reason that these promises have not come to pass and have not been fulfilled by God. And here's what complicates this matter even further. Uh, in this culture and society, having children is everything. It, it's really the complete opposite of our society today. You know, our society is much more individualistic in the sense of what you do and what happens to you as an individual and what you make of your life is much more important than the well-being of your family and what happens to your family. But it's the exact opposite here in Genesis. And so uh, having children is legitimately kind of a status symbol. I think you see that in the fact that Hagar starts boasting over Sarah when she learns that she's conceived and that she's pregnant. And so uh, Sarah, to be a barren woman and to be unable to have children means that Sarah would look like, she would feel like, and she would be seen as, in this culture, as a nobody. And, and it really seems that Sarah has kind of begun to wrap up her identity in this, wrap up her identity in this cultural ideal of having a family. And, and because she doesn't meet the cultural standard of having a family and being able to bear children, and she's wrapped that up into her identity, she tells herself a lie about God, and she says, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Like, God is keeping me from this. I'm just not going to be able to do it, and God does not care about me. Now, look, like I said, even though we're a much more individualistic culture than they were, don't think for a minute that we don't have things in our culture and society that mark you out as a barren woman. 
Like, listen, we have cultural ideals of success and what it looks like to be crushing it. And if you don't meet those cultural ideals, uh, it's really easy for you to begin to feel like you're a nobody. I'll, I'll just give you a couple examples that I think are really specific to our context. The first is competency at your job. And so if you aren't doing well at your job and you're not advancing and promoting in the military and you're not uh, being paid well and you don't have this high-class, respectable position, it's easy to start to feel uh, a little bit like you're second class because the reality is that a lot of people are going to look at you like you're second class. Like in America, we so often like to think that we live in a meritocracy where if you have something, it's because you worked hard for it and you earned it and you deserve it. And so if somebody doesn't have something, uh, if they're not very good at their job, they don't make a lot of money, they don't have this high respectable position, uh, it's easy to think that something must be wrong with them. I think another way that this plays out in our culture is that our culture very much has the ideal of having an Instagrammable family and life. And so you've got to be able to present your life as if you've got the perfect life and your house is so nicely decorated and everything's great and your kids are always doing something funny or cute or you're always taking them to do something fun. And if you don't measure up to that cultural ideal of job is great, marriage is great, kids are great, house is great, family's great, everything is great, like it's easy to feel like there's something wrong with you, that these are the things that our culture puts on us like this. And when we wrap up our identity in these things to the point where we start to feel like like being good at my job and having a respectable position and, and having my life together, or at least looking like I have my life together, that that's what gives me worth. That's what makes me valuable in uh, other people's eyes. And if I don't have those things, I must not matter or something must be wrong with me. When we bake these things into our identity like that, that's when, just like Sarah does here, we begin to doubt the promises of God. We start to feel like he's holding something back from us and keeping something from us, and we feel like we need to help him out a little bit. So I'm just going to out myself a little bit here. I hope it's okay to not be okay. Um, but I, I just have a really bad problem about being incredibly OCD about making sure that things are locked before I leave the house or the office. Uh, and so, like, it, if someone else locks it, that's, that's just not good enough for me. Like, I've got to see it for myself. And so even if I go out at the same time as them, and so whether it's at the office or it's at the house, if, like, Braylon locks the back door or she puts the dog in her crate, uh, I'll always tell her some live, like, hey, I just think I forgot something. I need to go check something real quick. And she's figured out by now that I'm just lying through my teeth and what I'm actually going to do. Uh, I've got to go see for myself and make sure this is locked, right? And, and so... Like, I think I'm just helping out, you know, I think I'm just doing that, but what I'm really doing is I'm saying, I don't trust these other people to do it, like, I have to see it for myself. And that's what's going on with Sarah here. She's thinking, God has made these promises, he, he said he's going to give us a son, but I can't have a baby, and so maybe I've got to help God out a little bit. Like, she thinks that God just needs a little bit of her help and her planning and her ingenuity. I mean, she's thinking like, maybe God just has Koa 1 and this could be Koa 2. Like, maybe he just hasn't considered that we could do this through Hagar. I mean, this is the cultural custom of the day. This is what you do. If you are barren and can't have children, you give your servant to your husband. And so let's just do what everybody else does. This is the natural, logical solution to make these promises come to pass. This is what she does. And she believes this, that she has to help God out like this and listen so often we do the exact same thing. 
So often we shrink down the power and the promises of God and think, yeah, He just needs a little bit of my help if this is going to come to pass. We think like, yeah, God is big and powerful. He's more than capable, but He needs me to angle a little bit and, and, and play here a little bit uh, if things are going to go well for me. I'll just give you a few examples. Uh, so before I started preaching here at Veritas, I was about halfway through seminary, and I really wanted to be serving somewhere, uh, pastoring and preaching. Uh, Braylon did at the time and still does have an incredible job, but I, I still really didn't want us to get to the point where I graduated seminary uh, and didn't have anything lined up, didn't have a job, and had no clue uh, what we were going to do. And so I started putting in applications and resumes places looking for jobs. And I don't know if you know this, uh, but most churches are not looking to hire a 24-year-old to be one of their pastors and their preachers. Uh, they, they always want somebody with five to ten years of experience, usually senior leadership experience, which is just a little bit hard to come by when you're 24. Uh, and so I started putting in all these resumes and looking all these places, and, and nothing was coming up, nothing was coming back, nothing was working out. And so I really started to wrestle with this temptation of God and to feel like, like God, I'm going to get left behind and forgotten about if, if I don't help you out here. Like, I'm not going to have a job. I'm not going to have something to do. I'm not going to have a place to serve if I don't make a name for myself and stand out in class and uh, get people to know my name. So I've got to be the best one in class. I've got to find ways to stand out. I've got to find the ways to get the attention of these professors who know churches who are hiring so that they can recommend me. And, and listen, in saying that, like networking is not bad. Connecting with other people is not bad. So many opportunities in our lives open up like that because of somebody that we know. I'm not at all saying that any of those things are bad. What I am saying is that the motivations of my heart were. Like, my feeling like I needed to do that stuff came out of a heart that didn't trust God and felt like I needed to help Him out a little bit if, I, if things were going to go well for me. And, and so the irony of all of this is that I'm struggling with so much frustration and doubt towards God. Like, God, like, what are you doing? Do you not care about me? Like, why are you leaving me hanging out to dry here? Do you, like, what... Where are you in this? Why is everybody else getting all these opportunities and positions and you just seem to have forgotten me? And so the irony is I'm spending all that time doubting and then I get an email from Veritas because they had reached out to Southeastern who connected them with me. Like I didn't go looking for it. I didn't put in a resume or an application. I didn't even know that that was a thing or even an option. And so I'm spending all this time just frustrated and doubting God. Like, God, why are you doing this to me? When the whole time he's trying to show me like, hey, bro, really don't need your help in this. Uh, I'm a big boy. I can do this all by myself. Here's this incredible opportunity for you uh, because you guys were the church crazy enough to hire a 25-year-old. Uh, and so, so here we are, right? And but, but think of how often we do this, right? Think about the culture at your work and, and how often you face the temptation to feel like, like, God, if I work with integrity here and I don't fudge the truth a little bit and I don't find ways to kind of cheat and cut corners and I don't step over other people to get promoted or selected, then I'm just going to get left behind. This is my only option because this is what everybody else does. And God, of course, I know you want me to be promoted. I know you want me to get selected. And so it doesn't matter if I play the angles a little bit here and, and cut corners because the end justifies the mean. Right? This is what Sarah is doing here. And, and if you think, hey, that's not that big of a deal. What she's doing here is not that bad. Uh, Moses, the author of Genesis, leaves us no doubt that this is sinful and this is wrong. 
Look at the language that he uses. In verse 2, once Sarah tells Abraham her plan, it says that Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Then in verse 3, it says that uh, Sarah took Hagar, her servant, and gave her to her husband, Abraham, and, and then he went into her. Like, where have we heard that language before? That's Genesis 3, right? That's Genesis 3 in the garden when Adam listened to the voice of his wife, Eve, and Eve took from the forbidden fruit and, and gave some to her husband who was with her. This is the garden all over again. This is sinful and this is wrong. Now listen, yes, let's just admit, this makes perfect human sense. God's made this promise. I can't have a baby. Let's just do it this way instead. It makes perfect human sense, but it's wrong. It's failing to trust the promise and power of God. And it's trying to take matters into your own hands. So often we think we're helping God out when what we're really doing is saying, God, you're just not big and capable enough to fulfill this promise for me and bring it to pass. So I've got to help you out a little bit if that's going to take place. And so as the story moves on, Abraham sleeps with Hagar. And just to add salt to Sarah's wound, it seems like A leads to B and, and they conceive on the first try. And so when Hagar realizes that she is pregnant, uh, verse 4 tells us that she begins to look down on Sarah and treat her with contempt, start bragging over her and boasting about this. Remember, having children is a status symbol in this culture. And so I imagine Hagar is saying something like, Sarah, Abraham's going to forget all about you now that he has a child with me. Now I'm going to be the favored wife. I'm going to be the one he loves. I'm going to be the one he pays attention to. And you're just going to get tossed to the side. And I think it's at this point that Sarah has that moment when she realizes that her sin has absolutely backfired on her and done the exact opposite of what she wanted it to do. And so she does what so many of us do when we get confronted with our sin like that. Uh, she lashes out and blames someone else, right? She gets mad and starts chewing out Abraham like, why did you do this? Why did you do this with her servant? Look at how she's treating me. And, and let's just be equal opportunity offenders here, right? Like in chapter 12, it was Abraham's fault. Pimping out your wife to the Pharaoh because you're a faithless coward, like that one is on you. And in no way is Abraham excused here. He, he's about to be a faithless coward again, and he never should have done this. But like Sarah doesn't have good ground to stand on here, right? Like this is her fault. This is her sinful plan. Abraham shouldn't have done it, but he just did what he wanted her to do, what she wanted him to do. And so after this happens, she gets mad at him and lashes out. Like, this thing is such a mess. And once again, Abraham acts like a coward, and he says, she's your servant, she's in your power, do whatever you want with her. And so Sarah begins to treat her harshly and deal harshly with her, and Hagar flees into the wilderness. And that moves us to the next thing we see in this passage, the presence. Now, Moses, the author, has put so many clues in here as to how he wants us to read this story. When Hagar, when it says that Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar, that's the same sort of language used in Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus 5 to describe Pharaoh and the Egyptians dealing harshly and beating their Israelite slaves before God set them free in the Exodus. And so before Egypt ever did this to Israel, Sarah did it to her Egyptian slave, just beating her and treating her like garbage. Like, she does this, and then Hagar flees, and she flees in the wilderness to a well of water, 
which is exactly what the Israelites do on their way out of Egypt uh, in, after the Exodus. It's just like coming from reverse directions what they do. And so Moses is expecting that we'll read our Bible more than once and we'll come back and pick up on this connection that we're supposed to read Hagar's story in light of the Exodus. Because the same way that God met the Israelites in the wilderness with his presence and protection and blessing is what he does with Hagar here. The angel of the Lord meets her in the wilderness and he says, what have you, what's going on? What did you do? Where are you coming from? And she tells him, and then he says that she should go back and submit to her mistress Sarai or her master Sarah. Now, I'll just be honest. Uh, the first time I reread that as I was starting to prepare for this, I was like, God, are you serious? Like, go back and submit to her? Like, are, are you kidding me? You're going to tell her to do that? But as I, I read a little bit more on it and I listened to a few other people on it, it, it really helped me clarify a few things as to what's going on here. And so first, like hear me in this, God is not telling her to go back and submit to abuse. We should not get from this story, if you're being abused, you're just called by God to stay and submit to it, submit to it as a way to be faithful to him. Listen, no, God, no. Please do the exact opposite. Call the cops. Call us. Like, do whatever it takes to help get you to safety. God does not want that for you, and he does not ask that of you. He does not ask that you endure that as some sign of faithfulness to him. I don't care what garbage somebody else has told you. He does not expect that you should submit to abuse. He doesn't ask you to submit to abuse. That's not what's going on here. This is a much different situation. I mean, think about this. Hagar is a refugee runaway slave on the run. She's in the desert uh, with no food. She'll have no job prospects when she gets back to Egypt. Uh, she's pregnant, which means that nobody will marry her when she gets back to Egypt. Like, she really has no hope of making it back to Egypt and, and living. And so if she keeps on this journey, she keeps trying to go back home to Egypt, she's literally going to die out here in the desert. And so God, as a way of protecting her, tells her to go back where Abraham can provide for her and protect her. And Sarah stops doing this when she comes back. And when Sarah starts getting verbally aggressive with her again in chapter 21, God allows her to go and he protects her and he provides for her in the wilderness. And so God is not at all saying that we should submit to abuse, but he tells her to go back and then he gives her this promise. He says he's going to multiply her offspring just like he's going to multiply Abraham's. And then he says that she's going to have a son and she should call that son Ishmael, which, mean, which means God hears because God has heard her cries in her afflictions. Now, listen, this isn't the exact same as the promise to Abraham. Like Jesus is not coming through her line and it says that Ishmael is going to be a wild donkey of a man. So do whatever with that that you will. Uh, so it's not the exact same, but this is beautiful, is it not? Like, call his name God hears because I've heard you in your affliction. Hagar, I haven't forgotten about you. I haven't overlooked you. I haven't stopped caring for you. And, and it just keeps getting better because verse 13 tells us that she calls the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, or a, a better translation of that, you are the God who sees me. And she calls the name of the well where she was at, where God met her, Beer Lahai Roy. Now, just a distinction here. This is not a well of beer. This is a well called beer. And so that's a key difference there. But Beer Lahai Roy means well of the living one who sees me. So she's saying, this is the place where I saw the one 
who sees me, who looks after me, who cares for me. And this is beautiful, is it not? This is, it sounds exactly like what God says in Exodus chapter 2 before he's about to set the Israelites free from slavery. Listen to Exodus 2, 23-25. This will come up on the screen. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Is this not exactly what God is doing here in the wilderness with Hagar? This is the type of God that he is. He's the God who sees, God who cares, a God who hears, a God who knows. This is what he's doing. He, Hagar is an a, a, a outcast, runaway slave, forgotten by everybody. She's unimportant in the eyes of the world, but she's not unimportant to God. Like He sees her. He cares for her. He dignifies her. He bestows worth and value on her. I mean, think about this. Besides that weird dude Melchizedek, uh, Abraham and Sarah are like the only followers of God on the earth at this time, the only followers of God that Hagar knows. And they've treated her like absolute garbage, right? Like, do you really think that she had a say in the whole, why don't you sleep with my slave girl plan? We'll have a son through her. No, of course not. And when she just did what they wanted her to do, Sarah starts to hate her and beat her and treat her harshly, so harshly that Hagar would rather risk dying in the desert than being there at the house with Abraham and Sarah. And so if these are the only representatives of God that she knows, and this is how they treat her, man, it'd be really hard for Hagar not to feel rejected by God, not to feel like God hates her in the same way that Sarah hates her. But listen, he doesn't. He doesn't. He sees her. He cares for her. He dignifies her. He hasn't forgotten about her or overlooked her. He is the God who sees her. I mean, do you realize that she is the only woman in the book of Genesis to receive a promise directly from God where God speaks to her like this? The only other people this happens to in Genesis are men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This doesn't happen for Sarah. doesn't happen for Rachel. doesn't happen for Rebecca. Only her. Not just that, she's the only person in the Bible, entire Bible, to ascribe a name to God. Every other time, God comes and he reveals his name to human beings, but Hagar is the only person, man or woman, in the entire Bible to give a name to God. El Roy, you are the God who sees me. Do you you see how intimately God cares for her and specifically how he loves her? You see how he dignifies her and gives her worth and value, how he has not stopped paying attention to her. He has not stopped loving her. He cares for her. He's the God who sees her. So look right at me. If you've endured abuse, whether that's spiritual, emotional, physical, or sexual, if you've endured abuse, listen, I can't imagine the turmoil that must have caused in your relationship with God. I I can't imagine the doubts and hurts and questions you have to struggle with. God, do you hate me? God, do you even care about me? If you love me, why would you let this happen to me? Why would you make me go through this? Now listen, I I can't answer those questions and those hurts for you. But what I can do is I can say that if you've 
I can point you to the story of Hagar, and I can say if you've endured abuse or mistreatment or marginalization, God sees you. He cares for you. He's heard you in your cries. He has not overlooked you or forgotten about you. He's not going to quit on you. He so deeply loves you. Listen, you are valuable to him. You are important to him. You're not what people have said to you. You're not what people have done to you. You're not a nobody. You are somebody in the eyes of God. He is the God who sees you. He's God who loves you. And you know how we can have great confidence in that? I think at this point, we've got to really ask ourselves the question, why in the world is this story even in the Bible, right? Because you realize that we're not getting a play-by-play of everything that happened in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. It's not like chapter 13 is what happened to them on Monday, and then chapter 14 is what happened on Tuesday, and on and on. Like Moses is selecting what he chooses to tell us about Abraham and Sarah here. Which means he could have painted Abraham and Sarah as these great role models of faith to follow who always trusted God and never sinned and never failed like this, but he doesn't. He highlights, he showcases some of their most wicked and grievous sin. I mean, this is horrific. And he puts this in the book and makes sure that we're told this part of Abraham and Sarah's story. So why is this even in the Bible? This story is in the Bible to show us that the Bible is not a book of rules to follow and good moral examples to imitate. Like Christianity is not, if you do good things and you're a good person, then God will bless you. If it was, these stories would not be in the book. But these stories are in the book in all of their wickedness and all of their darkness and all of their terribleness to show us that God pours out His grace and blessing and salvation on bad people who do not deserve it and who cannot earn it. You see, this story in chapter 16 is all about God's grace. It's all about the gospel. It's all about what God does for us. Paul picks up on this story in Galatians chapter 4, and he tells us that the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar can be interpreted allegorically. Now, listen, don't get scared by that. That's not a bad word. That's a Bible word. And it simply means that all of this happened and it has meaning. But yet, as time moves on, we also see a deeper symbolic meaning that's attached to it. And so Paul in no way is saying anything bad about Hagar herself as a person. Like, hear that. He's not saying anything bad about Hagar herself. But what he says is that Hagar and the son she gives birth to represent what we can do in the flesh what we can do in our own strength, what we can engineer and cook up by our own power. I mean, think about it. She's young. She's fertile. It's not so much of an impossibility for them to be able to have a child together. While on the other hand, Paul says that Sarah and the son she eventually gives birth to represent uh, what God does to fulfill his promise all by himself. Romans 4, Paul tells us that Sarah's womb was dead, that this was a biological impossibility. And so the only hope they have for God to fulfill his promise and give them a son is resurrection. The only hope they have is if God gives life to their dead womb. Like that's their only hope. They have no hope in their ability to do anything because it's an impossibility for them to do anything. And that's faith. Faith is not, I trust God to do His part, and then I come along and I do my part. Faith is, I trust God to save me and fulfill His promises all by Himself, completely by His grace. Look, we do not contribute to our salvation. 
The only thing we bring to the table is the sin that we need to be saved from. This is why we're different from every other religion. Every other religion says if you want God to bless you and show favor to you and save you, you've got to be a good person and you've got to do good things and be religious and go to church and give your money and serve. But Christianity says even your best deeds are shot through with sinful motivations. You're never going to be good enough. That's why Jesus had to come and be good enough for you. And if you'll simply put your trust in Him and stop trusting in yourself to save you, He'll save you in an instant. Now listen, if you think you're generally a good person, you know, I'm, I'm pretty successful, people generally like me, I'm not that bad of a person, well then yeah, Jesus is never going to mean anything to you, but if you understand reality, that you are a sinner who has no hope in yourself of saving yourself, if you can get to the point where you can say, yep, can't fix myself, can't contribute, can't figure this out, then this is great news. Because it means that all you need to be saved by Jesus is your need. This is for anyone. This is for everyone who will simply get low enough and admit that they need Jesus to save them. Anyone and everyone can get in on this. But the good news doesn't stop there. I think the reality of grace that Paul is seeing in this story also helps us with the temptation to take matters into our own hands. Because I think so much of our frustration in the Christian life comes from us thinking that our relationship with God is completely dependent on us. That God saves us and He gets us on the team, and then it's up to us to work really hard and do good things and go to church to stay on the team and stay in His favor and good graces, but that's not the case. It's God's grace from first to last. The gospel is not, I forgive your sins, now get to work. The gospel is, it's finished. Like, done. Completely. Every single sin, paid for past sins, present sins, future sins you haven't even thought about committing yet. Paid for in full. No condemnation hanging over your head. You're completely right and righteous before God forever. Like that's the good news. And when we rest in that and when we receive that, God uses that to change us from the inside out. Because listen, God's not after your behavior. He's after your heart. We don't live out our, our behavior. We live out of our hearts. What we most desire, what we most think is going to bring us joy and satisfaction, that's what we live for. And so God knows if He gets our hearts, He's going to get everything else. He will get our hands. He will get our feet. He will get our minds. He'll get our mouths. He'll get everything else. Because here's the reality. You're not a human doing. You're a human being. We have to live out of this. We have to live from an identity, not for an identity. We have to live drinking deeply from the well of God's grace toward us and His love and delight in us. Otherwise, we're, all, we're not going to be able to help ourselves from trying to uh, work for an identity and trying to take matters into our own hands. Because here's what we'll do. We'll say, yeah, of course, I'm saved by grace and Jesus forgives my sins, but functionally, where we find our worth and value and identity is in our work ethic or our intelligence or, or whatever it is. Like that's what we pride ourselves on. That's what we think makes us important. And so uh, I'll just give you an example. Like, for example, when I am not resting in God's grace and I'm not trusting and delighting in his love that he has for me, uh, I'll, I'll functionally say, yeah, I'm saved by God's grace, but I'm kept by how well I'm kept and I'm defined by how well I preach and how well I'm doing as a husband and how well I'm doing as a friend and how well I'm doing at my job. Like, 
Those are the things that give me worth. That's what gives me joy. That's what wakes me up in the morning. And so when I do that and I stop resting in God's grace and start looking for an identity, I start feeling like I've got to help God out a little bit. I start doing all these things to get people to notice me and approve of me for these things because those things are the things I'm looking to find my joy in instead of Jesus. But those wells run dry so quickly, they were never meant to satisfy us because they can never be God for us. Only God can be God for us. And so how do we do this? How do we live from an identity and not for one? Well, no surprise if you've been with us for any length of time at all, I'm sure you figured out by now that I really just have one sermon application. Look to Jesus. Rest in the deep love of Jesus for you. If you're a Bible nerd, maybe you notice that this is the first time that this mysterious figure, the angel of the Lord, shows up in the Bible. And maybe you noticed a few interesting things about this figure. It says that it's the angel of the Lord, not just an angel of the Lord. And by the end of the time that Hagar is talking to this angel of the Lord, she's referring to him as God, calling him the God who sees me. In the book of Revelation, when an angel appears to the apostle John and he starts to fall on his face and worship it, uh, the angel says, stop doing that. I'm not God. Uh, but that's not what happens here, right? And, and so, I mean, he, verse 13 even says, the text says that Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. And so this isn't simply an angel, right? Angel means messenger. And so this messenger of the Lord is in some ways distinct from God and sent by God. But yet at the same time, he clearly is God and he speaks as God. Right? And so who is this angel of the Lord? I think it's really clear that it's Jesus. It's a pre-incarnate, before he takes on our humanity, appearance of Jesus. That the God who sees Hagar is Jesus. The God who meets her with grace at this well is Jesus. And if you don't believe me and you think, ah, that's kind of a bit of a stretch, this isn't the last time that Jesus is going to do this. In John chapter 4, he goes to Samaria and he goes to seek out a woman where? By a well of water. A woman who just like Hagar, whose life, she was a marginalized outcast whose life had been broken by the way that other people had treated her. She was unimportant in the eyes of the world, but she was not unimportant to Jesus. He met her on that day with grace and kindness, just like he met Hagar on this day. You see, God is preparing us for what he's going to do through Jesus. Jesus is giving us pictures and shadows and foretaste of what he's like. He's gracious. He loves sinners. He loves the marginalized and the outcast and people who are nobodies in the eyes of the world because they are not nobodies to him. And this is where we go to find our identity. We rest in Jesus' deep love and care and attention towards us. This is the only place to find lasting joy. This is the only place that can give us real significance and security. And here's the good news that this passage shows us. It's available. It's available. This passage shows us what Jesus is like. Jesus is never checking his watch when you're talking to him. He's never absent-minded thinking about his next appointment for the day when you're with him. And when you feel forgotten and overlooked and abandoned by everybody else, he is the God who sees you. When you feel like no one else understands your hurts and your pains and your cries, he is the God who hears your cries. 
He's the God who loves you this intimately and specifically. You're not a nobody to Him. He's not too busy for you. You're not just a number to Him. He is the God who sees you. And so look, are, are you a sinner like Abraham and Sarah? Have you made an absolute mess of your life through your sin? Or, or has your life been broken like Hagar's because of the way that other people have treated you? Have you failed to trust God? Have you tried to take matters into your own hands? And well, here's the good news that all of us can cling to. Jesus hasn't just seen you. He's died for you. He stepped into human history and took upon Himself all of our sin, all of our faithlessness, all of our rebellion and failure, and took it upon Himself and paid for it all at the cross so that we would be able to say, truly here in this place, I've seen the God who died for me. Listen, that's how much He loves you. That's how much He's for you. And this is your identity. If you've trusted in Jesus, this is the most fundamental truth about who you are. You're not what you've done. You're not what people have done to you. You're not how much success you have. You're not the lack of success that you have. You are someone the Lord sees. You are someone the Lord knows. You are someone the Lord hears. You are someone the Lord cares for. You are someone the Lord loves. And you are someone the Lord died for. Man, that's reality. That's what's most true. You take that reality into your heart and you rest in that grace and it will change you. I promise you it will. And so let me pray that it would. Jesus, thank you for your grace. That, that in a story like this that, that seems so dark and so messy, that in the darkness you shine through. Your grace and kindness is what's on display as you meet Hagar in the wilderness and you give grace to Abraham and Sarah even though they vastly don't deserve it and they act like this. And so Jesus, would you help us to rest in this grace, to rest in the reality that in you, this is what's most true about us, that you love us, you see us, you care for us, united us to yourself, Jesus, so that we would be right and righteous before your Father forever. God, help us to take that into our hearts so that we wouldn't try to take matters into our own hands, so that we wouldn't try to carve out identity and meaning for ourselves. Jesus, I, I pray in this moment, even now you'd start working on our hearts in that direction. Thank you that you are the God who sees us, the God who hears us, the God who cares for us, and the God who died for us, Jesus. As we come to your table, help us to rest in that grace. You're so good and you're so kind to us. In your name, amen.